0: 2 Corinthians chapter 11 to start with this evening. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. and We'll be in Genesis 41, but I want to begin here in 2 Corinthians 11. Unjust suffering doesn't come with a termination date, does it? What I mean by that is when believers suffer unjustly, there isn't a date that is given to us when this will end, is there? I mean, when Job, when Job suffered unjustly at the hands of Satan, God said that he was the one that was behind it. And yet, at no point in Job's life during his deep trial did God come around and say, Job, just hang on a little bit longer. Just hang on till February. I'm going to get you through this. Or I've got something great for you on the other side, Job. Just, just hang in there. And the, the writers throughout Scripture feel this pressure of the fact that the suffering doesn't come with the termination date. We don't know when it actually is going to, to be finished. David cried out in Psalm 6-3, How long, O Lord? And Asaph did the same thing in chapter 79 of Psalm and chapter 80. And Ethan did the same in Psalm, 7, in 80, Psalm 89. And Moses in Psalm 90, How long, O Lord? Are you going to continue to allow this wicked to remain? Are you going to continue to allow this unjust suffering? Habakkuk was confused at all the evil that was around him. And he was wondering why the evil around him was not being punished. And here's what he says in chapter 1, verse 2, How long will I call for help and you will not hear? And of course, Paul went through some of the deepest struggles as we'll see here. And verse 24. Some of the deepest struggles imaginable without knowing when they would end. Look at verse 24 with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, danger on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from such external things, there's a daily pressure of me or on me of concern for all the churches. So Paul recognizes there was some suffering that he was experiencing as well. And I would call that, in his case, unjust suffering. That is, he didn't bring it on himself because of some evil that he had committed. Or rather, God allowed it to come into his life to help the Gospel flourish. And I don't know what kind of suffering you're going through right now if you're suffering unjustly. But if you are, you, like these Scripture writers, don't know when it will end. But what you should know and what you should bank on is that God is behind it. That God is actually using that unjust suffering to help you, to bring you to a place where He wants you to be, and bring other people where He wants them to be. So now turn to Genesis chapter 4, 41. Genesis chapter 41. What I love about this passage tonight is that God is so serious about doing what He wants that He will even go as far as controlling the economy of whole nations in order to bring about what He wants. And as we go through this passage, see if you can see God's hand in it all. That God is transforming and using the circumstances of whole nations to bring about His purposes for His own people. Chapter 41, I'll just read the first eight verses to start, and then we'll read the other verses as we go along. Genesis chapter 41, verse 1. This is the Word of God. Now it happened at the end of two full years that Pharaoh had a dream, and behold, he was standing by the Nile, and lo, from the Nile there came up seven cows, sleek and fat, and they grazed in the marsh grass. And then behold, seven other cows came up after them from the Nile, ugly and gaunt, and they stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly and gaunt cows ate up the seven sleek and fat cows, And then Pharaoh awoke. He fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain came up on a single stalk, plump and good. Then behold, seven ears, thin and scorched by the east wind, sprouted up after them. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump and full ears. Then Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. Now in the morning his spirit was troubled, so he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. And Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was no one who could interpret them to Pharaoh. It's amazing how God uses secular people or even secular nations to accomplish what He wants to accomplish. And here we see God using a secular king, this Pharaoh, to reveal His truth to Ultimately, to Joseph and to the rest of the nation, so that he can protect them through it. And so we see Pharaoh's dream is actually something that comes from God. It's actually God giving Pharaoh this dream. And we could put Joseph in a very similar boat as we have the other people in Scripture that I've mentioned earlier. That they are unjust, often unjust unjustly suffer and Joseph is in the same boat remember he did nothing to put himself into Egypt he did nothing wrong to get himself into prison and yet there he is why does God wait have Joseph wait so long you see how long he has to wait look at verse 41 or verse 1 chapter 41 now it happened at the end of two full years why not free Joseph immediately why not use him right away John Calvin replies, nothing is more improper than to prescribe the time in which God shall help us. Since He purposely, for a long season, keeps His own people in anxious suspense that by this very experiment they may truly know what it is to trust Him. It's so foreign to us, it should be so foreign to us, that we suggest for a time when we end our own trials, Calvin says. Why is that? Because God wants to keep us in anxious suspense so that we know what it is to trust Him. Have you been there? Have you been through a deep, dark trial and you didn't know what the end was, but when you got to the end, you saw that you were able to trust God more than you did before you were in the trial? You see, God has better plans for us than we have. I mean, think about it. Why would God reveal His plan to a pagan king? Why not just tell it to Joseph verbally or to Pharaoh verbally that, hey, a famine is coming? Why not just tell Joseph? Did you ever wonder that? Why why send it to Pharaoh instead of to Joseph? But if you think about it, it makes a whole lot of sense that God did it this way. Because God was trying to place Joseph in a position of power and if the the direct revelation came to Joseph, how would Joseph have had to respond? How would he have had to respond? He would have to go up to Pharaoh somehow, get a meeting with Pharaoh and say, listen, I had this dream and it comes from God and there's going to be a famine. think that would have held a whole lot of water before the king of Egypt. Obviously, God could have made that work as well, but But it makes a lot more sense that it would come through the pagan king. Joseph likely would have received a lot of resistance. You know, he's like, put me second in command so that I can gather in all the resources during the seven years of abundance so that we have enough when there's seven years of famine. And Pharaoh would simply look at him or maybe worse, have him executed or something for being such a fool. But see, God knows better than we do. He has better plans than we do. And so He even uses the most secular of people, sometimes the most powerful of people. And what we'll see in this passage is that He makes them do, these secular people, He makes them do exactly what He wants them to do. They are, in a sense, pawns in God's hands. And so God reveals his veiled plan to Pharaoh. Pharaoh just receives dreams. He doesn't really know what this means. He just is disturbed by it. He sees in verses 2 through 4, these scrawny, sickly looking cows devour up these fat, healthy cows. Remember, in those days, fat was a good thing because uh, you wanted to be well fed. Um, verses 5 through 7, the thin, sickly looking ears of grain sprouted up and overpowered the thick, healthy looking ears of grain. They actually devoured them. But Pharaoh is frustrated. You see that in verse 8? Now in the morning, his spirit was troubled. And this is the same response that the bakers had in chapter 40, verse 6. When Joseph came to them in the morning and observed them, behold, they were dejected. And he asked Pharaoh's officials who were with him in confinement in his master's house, why are your faces so sad today? And they said to him, we've had a dream and there's no one to interpret it. And so they... They similarly have a dream, but they cannot understand what it means, and so their minds are troubled like Pharaoh's is. I mean, think about these dreams from Pharaoh's perspective how disturbing they would be. Because if you notice, this is not just talking about just some sickly cows somewhere devouring some fat and healthy cows. Notice verse 2 or verse 1 Behold, he was standing by the Nile. Verse three. Then behold, seven other cows came up after them from the Nile. So, Pharaoh in his dream is standing on the shore, watching this take place in the land of plenty. I mean, you remember Nile. The, the Nile produced quite a bit of natural resource for the area. They were very uh, averse, adverse to to uh, to uh, poverty because. You always had the Nile overflowing and providing enough uh, uh, providing enough water for the crops, and so while everybody else would have problems, the Nile, would, the the area around the Nile would not, and so Egypt, because of that, is a very fertile area. And so these dreams are basically putting a hole in that idea that, that Egypt is untouchable with the Nile. And verse six, the scorching east wind, which they would have been familiar with as well. And so his mind is troubled. So what does he do at the end of verse 8? He calls the best men that he has to interpret these dreams like Nebuchadnezzar did in the days of Daniel the prophet. And just like in Daniel's day, the same outcome is there. They cannot interpret it because it's from God and they are not. And this is exactly how God planned it. This was the way in which that God would bring His man before Him before Pharaoh and and he would be able to see his ability. So God uses even the secular kings to reveal his truth to them, and then verses nine through thirty six, God uses his people to explain the revelation. God uses his people to explain the revelation. What's amazing about this passage is that the wicked are going to consult God's servant. And, and of course, we know how that takes place because the chief cupbearer remembers Joseph. Look at verse 9. Then the chief cupbearer spoke to Pharaoh, saying, I would make mention today of my offenses. Pharaoh was furious with his servants and put me in confinement in the house of the captain, the bodyguard, both me and the chief baker. And we had a dream on the same night, he and I. And each of us dreamed according to the interpretation of his own dream. And now a Hebrew youth was with us there, a servant of the captain of the bodyguard, and we related them to him, and he interpreted our dreams for us. And to each one he interpreted according to his own dream, and just as he had interpreted for us, so it happened. And he restored me in my office, but he hanged him. So the chief cupbearer comes kind of sheepishly before Pharaoh in verse 9. And he says, I would make mention today of my offenses. The idea is that I'm going to now recall my oversights before you, O oh, great Pharaoh. Please forgive me. I I should have told you this earlier, but I'm telling it to you now because you're so disturbed about these dreams, and I think it's appropriate to tell you now. So he tells him about how Joseph rightly interpreted his dream and the dream of the baker and how they came to be exactly as Joseph had said. Well, of course, Pharaoh is wanting to jump all over this. He's already brought in his best men, the guys who can interpret omens and and these different signs and even the, the, the wisest men of the area. And now it's Joseph's turn. Verse 14, Then Pharaoh sent and called for Joseph, and they hurriedly brought him out of the dungeon. When he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came to Pharaoh... Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream, but no one can interpret it. And I've heard it said about you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph then answered Pharaoh, saying, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. So Pharaoh spoke to Joseph. In my dream, behold, I was standing on the bank of the Nile. And behold, seven cows, fat and sleek, came up out of the Nile, and they grazed in the marsh grass. Those seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and gaunt, and such as I had never seen for ugliness in all the land of Egypt. And the lean and ugly cows ate up the first seven fat cows. Yet when they had devoured them, it would not be detected that they had devoured them, for they were just as ugly as before. And then I awoke. I saw also in my dream, and behold, seven ears, full and good, came up on a single stalk. And those seven ears withered thin and scorched by the east wind, sprouted up after them, and the thin ears swallowed the seven good ears. And then I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. So Joseph stands before Pharaoh. He he has to clean up first. They shave him and put on appropriate clothes to go before the king. And then notice the very first thing that Pharaoh says to Joseph in verse 15. I have had a dream, but no one can interpret it. And I have heard it said about you that when you hear dreams, you interpret them. And here's the opportunity for Joseph to, to promote himself and say, you know, you know how much of a good servant I've been? I haven't caused any trouble, but I've done a lot of great things and I can interpret dreams. But notice what he does say in verse 16. At the end of the verse, it's not me. Not in me, it's God. In other words, I can't do it, but God can. And this should not be surprising to us. Look at verse 25 because Joseph deflects the glory to God, the praise. Now Joseph said to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's dreams are one and the same. God has told the Pharaoh what he is about to do. Look back to chapter 40, verse 8. When the the chief cupbearer and the chief baker come to him and they're distraught, Joseph says to them at the end of verse 8, Do not interpretations belong to God? Tell it to me, please. So Joseph recognizes that this is not of me that I'm able to interpret these dreams. Even though I have an opportunity to advance myself before this great human this great man of power, I'm going to deflect the praise to God where it belongs. And so, in verses 17 through 24, we have the same recounting of the dream that we already read about. Right? We already saw what the dream was about in verses two through seven, didn't we? But now Pharaoh does it again, and this is often the way that Moses writes and many scripture writers—they just repeat the story to emphasize what's taking place here. Now there are a few differences. From verses two through seven, um, verse twenty-one is one main difference. Yet when they had devoured them, the, the, uh, the ugly, gaunt cows, when they uh, when they devoured the fat ones, it could not be detected that they had, had devoured them, for they were just as ugly as before. So what you would expect is if a, a lean, ugly cow devoured a fat, plump cow, that that he would become fat and plump, but instead he stays ugly and lean. And Pharaoh is perplexed by this. Um, He goes on to talk about the, the ears of grain as well. And so God often veils His truth to the wicked and that makes them dependent upon God's servant to interpret God's Word to them. That that when the wicked people receive revelation from God or they want to know what God is doing in the world, they have to go to God's servants to find out. They have to go to you. And to me, and find out what's going on. Give me a valid explanation for what's going on. Has this happened to you in any of the recent tragedies that have taken place? Okay, going back to the terrorism attack on 9/ 11, Has anybody ever asked you, why could this possibly happen, or the tsunami or the you know the, the hurricane, the shootings? Why do these things happen? Why would a good God allow this thing? And now you have a responsibility to interpret God's revelation, to interpret based on the, the clear revelation that we have, what's going on? And that's what Joseph does here in verses 25 to 36. Notice what he does not say. In verses 25-36, he does not say, this is judgment coming down on the land of Egypt because you hate God. Let's read these verses. Verse 25, Now Joseph said to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's dreams are one and the same. God has told the Pharaoh what he's about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good years are seven years. The dreams are one and the same. Seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them, are seven years, and the seven thin years scorched by the east wind will be seven years of famine. It is as I have spoken to Pharaoh. God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Behold, seven years of great abundance are coming in all the land of Egypt, and after them, seven years of famine will come, and all the abundance will be forgotten in the land of Egypt, and the famine will ravage the land. So the abundance will be unknown in the land because of, what, uh, because of that subsequent famine. For it will be very severe. Now, as for the repeating of the dream to Pharaoh twice, it means that the matter is determined by God, and God will quickly bring it about. Now, let Pharaoh look for a man discerning and wise, and let him uh, set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh take action to appoint overseers in charge of the land, and let him exact a fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt in the seven years of abundance. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up the grain for food in the cities under Pharaoh's authority. And let them guard it. And let the food become as a reserve for the land for the seven years of famine which will occur in the land of Egypt, so that the land will not perish during the famine. God's servants must be ready to interpret God's revelation. Joseph does not say, this is judgment on the land. If that were the case, what would Egypt's response be? If God were pronouncing coming judgment, what would their response be? Like Nineveh, what would it be? To repent. You need to turn from your sin in order to avoid this judgment. But that's not what's going on here. This is instead a kind warning from God that I'm going to bring about what we know is a natural disaster Famine It's going to last for seven years, and I'm giving you a warning. And so your responsibility here, Egypt, is not to repent, but to be prepared, to take proper precaution. And I'm sending Joseph here to protect you from that, God is saying to these wicked people. Ultimately, we know the reason why this takes place. So that Israel could be brought from Canaan to Egypt to build a great group of people so that they could later be oppressed by the next pharaoh of Egypt and then be released from Egypt, be saved from Egypt through the Red Sea. So we know why this is taking place ultimately. But Joseph's job is to make sure that he's interpreting the dreams properly. And so when he interprets the dream, he does this in verses 25-32. to The dreams are one and the same. Hey, this is going to be seven years of abundance and seven years of famine. And now he makes application to that in verses 33-36. through 36. He says, here's what you ought to do, Pharaoh. You need to appoint somebody who's in charge of everything. And they need to do several things. They need to, first of all, require a 20% tax on all of the crops that come in. That is that they need to pay you 20% of the crops and have that overseer store up all those goods for those seven years. And appoint overseers to make sure that this is being carried out and and guards to make sure that all the food is protected, you need to gather it all up, guard it, and save it until the seven years of famine. so God reveals his truth to a secular king verses one through eight God uses to ex- his people to explain his revelation verses nine to thirty six and then Verses 37 through 57, God's people trust him despite their success. Despite their success. I'll tell you why I say it in those terms. But God's people trust him despite their success. In verses 37 through 45, we see that God's servant is rewarded because of his ability here to inter- interpret what God has said to Pharaoh. Verse 37, now the proposal seemed good to Pharaoh and to all his servants. And then Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we fa- find a man like this in whom is a divine spirit? So Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has informed you of all this, there is no one so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and according to your command, all my people shall do homage. Only in the throne I will be greater than you. Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt." And then Pharaoh took off his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put the gold necklace around his neck. He had him ride in his second chariot and they proclaimed before him, bow the knee. And he set him over all the land of Egypt. And moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, though I am Pharaoh, yet without your permission, no one shall raise his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And then Pharaoh named Joseph Zaphonath-Paneah and he gave him Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of An, as his wife. And Joseph went forth over the land of Egypt. God rewards his servant through this king. First, in verses 37-39, to 39, we see that Pharaoh recognizes the spiritual advantage that Joseph has. Now, he doesn't fully understand who God is, but he recognizes that the Spirit of God resides upon him. Look at verse 38. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has informed us... uh, I'm sorry, I skipped verse. Verse 38. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is a divine Spirit? Other translation, I think the New International Version has, in whom is the Spirit, capital S, of God. Can we find a man like this who has the Spirit of God residing upon him? Now, why would Pharaoh... Have that sort of thought. Notice what he says in verse 39. Pharaoh says, Since God has informed you of all this, there's no one so discerning and wise. I mean, where does Pharaoh get this idea that Joseph's God was with him? Well, I think the answer is in the text. Look at verse 16, remember? When Joseph responded to Pharaoh about being able to interpret dreams, Joseph says, What? It's not me, it's God. And then in verse 25, he says, God has told you what he's about to do. Verse 28, God has shown you what he's about to do. Verse 32, the matter is determined by God and God will quickly bring it about. Here's Joseph not afraid to say anything about his God and about how God is the one who's providing this this ability to reveal what these dreams mean. So that's where Pharaoh gets it from. Pharaoh gets the idea that there's something spiritually special about you, that you have the Spirit of God residing upon you because you're able to respond rightly. And he saw that because Joseph spoke so much about God. What about you? How do you speak about the events that are going on in the world? Is it embarrassing for you to say the name of God to other people? Are you afraid to say that God is the one who has control over tsunamis? And that God has control over famines? God has control over hurricanes? Joseph was not. He's saying this is a a terrifying dream, Pharaoh, that there's going to be seven years of famine. But I'm not afraid to tell you that this is from God. And this is actually a sign of God's mercy. So God's servant is rewarded because Pharaoh sees the spiritual advantage that Joseph has. There's no one better for the job than you. No one has the Spirit of God in him like you, Joseph. And so he's rewarded. Notice the rewards that he receives. Number one, he's made prime minister of Egypt. Verses 40 and 41. Um, let me read these verses. We haven't um Oh, actually, we did read those verses. Verse 40, You shall be over my house, and according to your command, all my people shall do homage. Only in the throne I will be greater than you. So, you are second in command. Prime Minister of Egypt. You are the visor. And in addition to that, he also re- is receives homage from the people. That he is treated like he is a great official. This is the job of the people to to bow to him in an act of submission. This would be quite a task for native Egyptians to bow to a Hebrew. Imagine. But they have to because Pharaoh tells them to. So they bowed the knee in verse 43. When he had him ride in his second chariots, they uh, they proclaimed before him, bow the knee. And he set him over all the land of Egypt. So, He's made prime minister. He's treated like a great official. Verse 42 tells us that he is given a signet ring, a symbol of authority, probably similar to the one that would be stamped on some some uh, softened wax to say this is the seal of the Pharaoh. This is what Pharaoh says. Joseph would be able to speak on behalf of Pharaoh. Verse 42, he also receives royal garments to symbolize his role as leader. No longer would he look as a like a common peasant, a foreigner. But he would be treated as an official. He would be wearing all the, the official garb and a gold necklace, verse 42. And he has authority over these people. Verse 43, He's receives this second chariot. And it's exactly what you would think it is. It's for the person who's second in command. In order to represent the nation and to travel around, he would have this second chariot that would be at his disposal. In verse 44, like other times, Joseph is given unsupervised power. Remember, this happened in Potiphar's house before he was wrongly accused and then in the prison. That they would give him this unsupervised power, the same thing happens here in verse 44. Pharaoh says, though I am Pharaoh, yet without your permission, no one shall raise his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. Whatever you say, Joseph, that goes. And two more things that he receives. Verse 45, a new Egyptian name. Verse 45, Zaphanath Paneah. Look in your margin to see uh, one idea of what that means. Some people suggest it means God speaks, He lives. Other people would say that it means nourisher of the two lands, the living one. It's not exactly clear what that name means, but, but Joseph is given a new Egyptian name to go along with his job and title and responsibility and then finally an Egyptian wife at the end of verse 45 he's given Asenath the daughter of Potiphar a priest of on as his wife and so Joseph is overwhelmed with great success and prosperity but what's amazing about that is is that Joseph still remains faithful And I say that's amazing because that doesn't always happen with God's servants. That They remain faithful to Him when they receive prosperity, when they have all this blessing poured upon them. Sometimes they allow that to go to their head. But not with Joseph. He remains faithful, verses 46-57. to Now Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt, and during the seven years of plenty, the land brought forth abundantly. So he gathered all the food of those seven years which occurred in the land of Egypt and placed the food, food in the cities. He placed in every city the food from its own surrounding fields. And thus Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until he stopped measuring it, for it was beyond measure. Now before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of An, bore to him. Joseph named the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. He named the second Ephraim, for he said, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. And when the seven years of plenty which had been in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, just as Joseph had said, then there was famine in all the lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. And so when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried out to Pharaoh for bread. And Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph. Whatever he says to you, you shall do. And when the famine was spread over the face of the earth, then Joseph opened up all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians. And the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. The people of all the earth came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe in all the earth. Joseph is treated with really unprecedented success as a foreigner in the Egyptian land, and yet he doesn't allow that to go to his head. He remains faithful. Turn to Second Chronicles chapter 26 because I want to show you an example of a man of God who allowed his success to, to get the best of him. And I'm sure you can think of lots of examples Second Chronicles 26. You can think of lots of examples like Solomon. A man of God who was, I believe, a genuine believer, but at the end of his life really just turned from God. Right? He, he married all these wicked women in order to get to positions of power. He even sacrificed his own children to, uh, to Molech. And, uh, and even David, to an extent, got a little careless with his power. As if he didn't need to have any constraints over him, but, but I think probably the, the clearest case of a person who allows success to get the best of him is Uzziah, King Uzziah. Chapter 26, Second Chronicles verse three. Uzziah was 16 years old when he became king, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jekaliah of Jerusalem. Notice, he did right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father Amaziah had done. Okay, usually an indicator that this person is a follower of God, a promoter of God's, God's works. Verse 5, he continued to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who had understanding through the vision of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God prospered him. Now he went out and warred against the Philistines and broke down the wall of Gath and the wall of Jebna and the wall of Ashdod and he built cities in the area of Ashdod and among the Philistines. And God helped him against the Philistines and against the Arabians or Arabians who lived in Ger-Baal and the Meunites. The Ammonites also gave tribute to Uzziah and his fame extended to the border of Egypt for he became very strong. Moreover, Uzziah built towers in Jerusalem at the corner gate and the valley gate and at the corner buttress and fortified them. He built towers in the wilderness and hewed many cisterns, for he had much livestock, both in the low land and in the plain. He also had plowmen and vine dressers in the hill country and the fertile fields, for he loved the soil. Moreover, Uzziah had an army ready for battle, which entered combat by divisions according to the number of their muster prepared by Jael scribe and Maaseah, the official under the direction of Hananiah, one of the king's officers. The total number of the heads of the households of valiant warriors was 2,600. And under their direction was an elite army of 307,500 who could wage war with great power to help the king against the enemy. Moreover, Uzziah prepared for all the army shields, spears, helmets, body armor, bows, and sling stones. In Jerusalem, he made engines of war invented by skillful men to be on the towers and on the corners for the purpose of shooting arrows and great stones. And hence his fame spread afar, for he was marvelously held until he was strong. So you see this great success that Uzziah is enjoying. In the beginning of the passage, it says that God helped him. As long as he sought God, God prospered him. And and you get this long list of how great of a warrior he was. How great of a man of of the, of the land he was. but Notice verse 16. A verse that should be etched into our minds. But when he became strong, his heart was so proud that he acted corruptly and he was unfaithful to the Lord his God, for he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Uzziah's life ends with leprosy, as we see in verse twenty one, because of his his uh, foolishness before God in the temple of God. But we see the reason that's given here in Chronicles. And when his heart became when his when he became strong, his heart became proud. He looked back on all of his accolades all the things that he had done, he looked around his whole kingdom and said, what a great job I have done! Throughout most of his life, most of his 52 years of service from the time he was 16, he had sought the Lord and taken down the high places and was a follower of God, but then his heart became proud. And so, there is a susceptibility even among believers to turn away from God in times of prosperity. And that's why I say for Joseph, in spite of his success, he remains faithful to God. In spite of it. And we know that because in Genesis chapter 41, he names his two children, Manasseh and Ephraim. He recognized God's goodness to him. God has shown His goodness, goodness to me by providing me this son, this heir. And I'm going to call him Manasseh because he makes me forget about all the trouble I had in my father's household. And I'm going to call this next son Ephraim because God has made me fruitful. It's not me because I'm so special at interpreting dreams because God has made me fruitful. And so every time I say those names, every time I hear those names, I'm going to be reminded of God's helping me to forget and God's helping me to be fruitful. So I would say to you and to myself that we need to guard our hearts during times of prosperity so that we do not turn away from God. because there will be times when things are going so good in your life that you don't need God. And I say that facetiously. I say that sarcastically. Where where we think we don't need God. We got it all taken care of. We've already advanced to the place we want to advance to. And if we need any help from here, we'll ask you, but until then we're fine. Because all of that success back there that that I've done throughout my whole life, that's all me. Guard your heart in times of prosperity, like Joseph did. Verses fifty-three through fifty-seven. Joseph prepares for the famine, and we'll talk more about that next week when we get to chapter forty-two. So God reveals His truth sometimes to the lost world, and our responsibility as Christians is to respond, to be able to interpret the things of God. Are you ready to give an answer when someone asks you? you? See, God's going to be the one, like with Joseph, to provide the opportunity. Are you ready to give an answer? The time to prepare is not after the question is asked. Now, sometimes we have to say, you know what? I need to look into the Scriptures and, and, and find out what the Scriptures say about that. But hopefully, First Peter 3.15, that we are at the place where Peter says we're always ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within us. We we always have some answer that we can give. Well, how do we do this? How do we get ready for questions that we don't even know are going to come? How do we know how to respond to people when they're going to ask us about certain events that are going on in the world or certain specific passages of Scripture? How, how could God be this way? How do we know how to respond? And the answer... Uh, may not satisfy you, but it is simply to know God. It is to know about God. Know about His Word. Spend time with Him. Listen to His Word being preached. Meditate on what God likes and what He dislikes. This is one of the reasons we read through the Scriptures. This is why I encourage us as a church to read through the Scriptures. To take time every day to read through the Scriptures because... We are in a relationship with God and sometimes it's good to hear God speak. God, what do you like? You know, you get through some of these passages like the prophets like we've been reading on Sunday morning and you're thinking, why are we reading about this judgment that's coming on the wicked nations or the judgment on Judah? And here's the answer. Because God's written it down for us. He wants us to hear Him speak about what He hates. And if He keeps saying it over and over and over again, then we need to to, to to pay attention. Maybe God does hate that. How can we avoid falling into that same sin so that we're not judged like Judah? So we read through the scriptures and we simply ask questions like this: What is it that God likes in this passage? What is it that God dislikes? What does He hate? We go through the books of Samuel and the books of Samuel and the books of the Kings. And we see which kings did right in the sight of the Lord. We watch their lives unfold. We see some similarities between us and some other people. And we want to see what is God like? What does He hate? We get to Proverbs and we see His wisdom. What kind of things are wise? What kind of things are foolish? We get to the prophets and we see false worship and playing the game and and how God loves a contrite heart. We get to the Gospels and the Epistles and the book of Revelation and we see what God wants to do in us, how He wants to transform us. And so we simply read through the Scriptures. We do it individually and we do it as a church. But if you're not doing that, then you're not seeing what God likes and what He hates and you're only getting little snippets of what He likes and hates from the little time that you hear the Word of God. What a valuable resource we have. We have at our our disposal every single day. So if you're not meditating on the Word of God, if you're not thinking about what God likes and what He hates, then you're not going to be able to answer questions when people come up to you and say, hey, what do you think about the latest current event? Or the latest fad? Or the latest hit TV show? What do you think about that? Our evaluation of that should not be based on our own opinion. Well, this is what I think. This is what God says about that. So, well, that TV show is, is opposed to God, or that current event was ultimately brought about by God, but, but He's a good God, and let me tell you how He's good. If you're not reading the Scriptures, if you're not meditating on them, you're not going to be able to answer. Joseph was ready. Turn to chapter forty-five, Genesis. I'm going to make one final point with regard to this passage, and that is that your suffering may feel unjust, but God is the one who brought it about. Okay, it may feel like it's unjust, like for Job, this isn't fair. But but what I want you to see in chapter forty-five is that God brought it about. Look at verse five. Joseph, after he finally reveals himself to his brothers, He says, now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And and He has made me a father to Pharaoh and a lord of all his household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Throughout the story of Joseph, from a purely human level, it seems like Joseph is the recipient of a lot of bad karma. And he's had a really bad string of bad luck. That's what it seems like from a human perspective. But that's not how Joseph sees it. That's not how God sees it. Two times in this passage, Joseph says this. Notice at the end of verse 5, God sent me before you to preserve life. Verse 8, now therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. The trial that I experienced, the unjust suffering that I was under for all of these years, was not because of you. It wasn't you that caused this. God was the ultimate causer. He sent me here. Here's why that is important for your life. Because you're not going through a string of bad luck right now. You're not the recipient of bad karma. That's humanistic nonsense. The Scriptures say that you are going through what you're going through because God sent you into it. He's not surprised by it. He knows exactly what you're going through because He sent you there. See, it's not that God is simply allowing these things to come into our life. Oh, well, you, you want to do that? Well, I guess I can allow that. It's actually that God is sending us there. Saying, I'm going to have you walk through some dark times. Because like Calvin says, there's not a better way For us to be in this anxious state where we finally get to know what it means to trust God. See, God has a greater purpose for you. And so He's happy to send you into these difficult times because He knows there's something better on the other end. And you know exactly what that purpose is according to Romans chapter 8. It is for your good and his glory that he brings about all things in your life. And we know this because the scriptures tell us. Now, with Joseph, we don't feel so bad for him because we know the rest of the story. With Job, we know how it all turns out in the end, and so we kind of minimize the struggle. We minimize Joseph's struggle. But with our lives, we don't see what's going to happen at the end. We don't see. We may know what happens at the end that God's going to finally continue or He's going to finish what He started in us, but we don't know how what's going to happen in between. We know it for Joseph because we've read about it. But between the time that I trust you and the time that you finally deliver me, what's going to happen? I don't know. And Joseph was in the exact same place that you are. We don't know what God's going to bring about, but we know it's good because we have a good God. And we understand and believe that there is nothing that God won't do to provide for you what is best. And that is His loving care and His transforming power to change you. And what's so amazing about God in the life of Joseph and in your life is that He's willing... And able to control whole nations. He can change their whole economy in order to bring about what He wants in His people. And so I would say to you that not only is your individual trial not a surprise to God, but all of the difficulty and the frustration that you see in our country and in our world is not a surprise to God. In fact, God's using it to bring about good in His people to bring about good in You. Let's pray. Father, we do trust that You are good. And we have seen Your goodness. We've seen it in Your Word and we've seen it in our own lives. We want to see it more. We want to be like Joseph so that in times of unjust suffering, we trust in You like He did. And in times of great prosperity, we trust in You. It's not easy because we are so prone to wander. We, we quickly move back and forth with every wind and wave of doctrine. We, we sometimes are so immature in our, our thinking and in our response to Your Word and we need Your Word to help shape our hearts to show us that we, we need to trust in You no matter what the circumstances and, and never to turn away from You And never to to turn to our own power, but to always trust in in the power that You give. May help us to see that. May help us to live that. Only You can provide that power. And we know that that comes through the means of Your Word and through prayer. And so we ask You to grant us wisdom and grace as we live for You, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.